listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belaboured episode 196. In this episode, we are speaking with longtime labor activist Bill Fletcher about what the pandemic means for the future of the labor movement. But first, the news. One of the sad social ramifications of the pandemic has been a surge of anti-Chinese hatred, much of it stoked by the White House and its anti-China rhetoric, but also exacerbated by underlying xenophobia that has now found a convenient target in a time of social turmoil and economic despair. As the anti-Chinese and anti-Asian sentiment intensifies, New York City's Commission on Human Rights just announced that it would tackle reports of harassment and discrimination against Asian Americans related to the coronavirus. Of the 248 reports of harassment and discrimination that the commission has fielded since February, more than 40% were anti-Asian. And beyond the incidence of bias attacks, Asian American communities have suffered a huge blow economically, both from the pandemic-induced economic downturn, as well as the overall decline in business that local Chinatowns have suffered due to anti-Asian discrimination, which actually predated the outbreak in the U.S. I talked with two leaders of the Asian Pacific American Labor Alliance, Kim Jeron and Monica Thamara, about how Asian American activists and labor movement are responding to the economic pressures and racial prejudice that Asian American and Pacific Islander communities are struggling with now. Asian American and Pacific Islander communities and workers face similar hardships because of everything that's going on, um, but um, also specifically and maybe disproportionately because the anti-Asian racism that is happening, but also um, because of the professions that API workers also work in, which are um, more impacted, right? And so I think we wanted to talk specifically about how everything is going on is impacting us like other low-wage immigrant workers, but also how it's impacting us maybe a little bit differently too. Yeah, I think it's like a it's like a, a dual impact on people because many of our folks that we represent, um, I mean, we're a little bit more in the so-called organized sector where people are unionized, but we also work closely with worker centers and folks who are not in organized unions, but are, or, you know, um, but by and large, the, the vast majority of people we work with are, are, are low-wage immigrant workers in the you know, the restaurant and hotel industry, a lot of folks we're connected with are in the healthcare industry. And those are the kind of folks that generally are on the front lines, right, uh, facing uh, the pandemic. And some of them are also experiencing various forms of hate um, when they're not at work, too. Um, but even at work, too, I just was on a Zoom call today with Russell Jones, and one of my students was talking about how where she works at a grocery store this lady had bought a sandwich from a, uh, from my student's coworker, and basically came up and said, "You know, what's in the sandwich?" And she said, "Well, I don't know. You, do you not want it?" She said, "No, I just it was made by this Asian woman over there, and I just don't. You know, they brought the COVID over here, and now I'm not sure I should eat the sandwich." And so my student, who's not Asian, just called around and said, "Well, that's really a racist statement." You know, <laughs> I mean, you know, she's but but she says, "You know, I get this stuff where here's a, my coworker who I know, and I eat." food with and we talk and then I'm having people just come up and completely diss her, you know, in this case it was behind her back, but you know, that, that's the kind of thing where whether it's a unionized grocery store or not, that, that, the commonplace um, um, hate is going on. So our workers definitely feel it just like, I think many API, whatever your status in life from the highest, you know, well-paid person to obviously maybe an unemployed person at this point. So we know that 
small businesses and restaurants are really hurting, and especially the ones in Chinatown, right, because of this heightened racism that is going on. Um, I think there are a few things that Apollo is doing um, both on the local level as well as the national level, right? Um, I think on the local level, a lot of our chapters are working directly with their members and 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 their unions um, to really support folks um, during this time. So, for example, you know, um, a lot of hotel workers are are mostly like immigrant women, right? Um, API and Latinx women, and you know, you know, while folks aren't going to hotels anymore, a lot of them are are getting um, laid off and. But folks also don't even have access to internet or computers to try to fill out unemployment insurance. So I know there are um, some of our chapters are really trying to help out other folks that are directly impacted to help, you know, with that one to one. One of our chapters um, in Massachusetts was just talking about how they're actually having their staff translate documents because, you know, while there are some supports, um, not all of these supports are being translated and accessible and and making it to um, some of our folks. And then I think on the national level, what Apala is also doing is, you know, making sure that um, in whatever next round of federal support and aid comes, it it definitely includes supporting all parts of our community. You know, I think under this current administration, um, the CARES Act really leaves out huge parts of our community like immigrant undocumented folks. And um, while states are trying to, you know, support those communities. Um, Apollo on the national level is also making sure that um, these vital communities aren't, aren't getting left out if, if there's another chance at some federal aid. That was Kim Jaron and Monica Thamrath of the Asian Pacific American Labor Alliance. Last week on April 15th, nurses and healthcare workers around the country held a day of action to call for protective equipment and beyond. The group of workers organizing with the help of our friends at Labor Notes are also beginning to think through what it would look like to have a healthcare system that is organized and run by the workers who provide the care and more. I spoke with two of those nurses, Julie Keefe from New York and Elizabeth Lalas from Chicago. A network of nurses and healthcare workers around Labor Notes um organization called mm-hmm. for a day of action where we could try to raise our voices together because so many of the issues going on right now are larger than individual hospitals it's systemic both the nature of the problems and i think the nature of the type of solutions that might make a difference in order to deal with some of the critical shortages of ppe i mean i don't think there's any way around nationalization of some of these producers Uh, and actually, you know, federally bringing some of these manufacturers under public control and directing them to produce to meet the needs rather than allowing them to profit and profit off of the scarcity in this time of need. So tell me, what are people going to be doing for actions? I mean, obviously, one of the huge concerns is, is how do you do interesting and creative actions that also keep people safe? Right. So I think what we're going to do is just pretty simple. There's a decent amount of fear because there's mm-hmm. been so many reports circulating of uh, healthcare workers being 
facing consequences for just simply speaking out about the conditions uh, in their workplaces. So it's going to be simple, uh, just trying to raise our voices about letting people know about our coworkers that have died and letting people know that when the politicians such as Trump and Cuomo yesterday Mm -hmm. tell the public that uh, there's adequate PPE, uh, this is not true. Cuomo said yesterday that any hospital operating off the crisis protocols should let him know. Well, this is us letting him know. And the situation at our hospital, it's not, it's not even one of the worst ones at all. And that's, you said Kingsbrook? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, tell me what it's been like at work. Um, well, this, this is a very nasty disease that's Mm-hmm. You know, bringing in people who are older, yes, but also younger, mm-hmm. um, that takes very sharp turns for the worst. Um, and, you know, it's revealed so many ways in which uh, our healthcare system has been cut to the bone and is just unprepared to, to deal with this, this surge of need. Even in, in before pandemic times, Many places were operating just on a very shoestring uh, amount of supplies, skeleton crew, staffing, and it's just been an almost impossible task to shift the healthcare system into being able to accommodate uh, this rising Mm -hmm. need because there was no excess capacity. I mean, I guess in the past, you know, having beds that weren't always occupied, uh, having supplies that weren't used tomorrow was considered wasteful, unprofitable, excess. Well, now it's right. been shown to be actually a life-saving safety net. And so we're trying to, to catch up. At, at my hospital, you know, you can have – you only have to use your mask and your gown for one day, which is actually, compared to many hospitals, better. Mm-hmm. However, yeah. compared to what is safe, it's inadequate. In the past, you only use your mask and gown for one patient encounter and then carefully mm-hmm. take it off. But now we're walking out into all of the hospital areas with our contaminated PPE. So it means that all the hospital environment, every space is contaminated. And so we're seeing, you know, workers uh, from every, de- you know, every department actually getting mm-hmm. sick. And yeah. the deaths in the hospital are spread, are spread throughout many different departments. Do you have a wing? Is there a special space for the, the COVID patients or is it? Sort of it just, just feels like it's the pretty much the whole hospital. Yeah. I yeah. mean, there's a, there's a, it's not strictly, but more or less. Most everyone, you know, all seems to trying to stay home. Uh, yeah. I guess, but almost everyone is either positive or waiting to get their test results. And unfortunately, given the situation with our uh, lack of PPE and our requirement to reuse it through multiple encounters, I mm-hmm. greatly fear that patients who come in and who might not have been positive when they come in, that changes yeah. over the course of their time in the hospital because we're exposing not only ourselves but uh, our other patients as well who are awaiting their test results. That was Julie Keefe, a member of the New York State Nurses Association, and this is Elizabeth Lalas from National Nurses United in Chicago. We had about 15 or 20 nurses. I was actually uh, pleasantly surprised. A lot of people from the emergency room, so they were oh, wow. had a lot of opinions about being really on the front lines because they received yeah, patients first. And our hospital is a safety net hospital. It's Fraser Hospital, so it's 
the busiest in the state. So right. we don't refuse anybody. So right. yes, people were particularly upset about uh, the N95 masks, which we've been able to mm-hmm. maintain getting, but people have to reuse them in the hospital yeah. and in the ER. Some people up to 45 days, they've been told they need to reuse it. So my God. So yeah, <laughs> 45 days. Three months ago or less, we were told one-time use per patient. You know, you would use it when you use through a shift, but never for 45, not for multiple days. Right, yeah, yeah. I mean, those things aren't that sturdy. No, they don't. And they say you fold them and they actually get pretty worn out after a certain amount of time. So people were upset about that um, and then were told to put them in a paper bag and hold them in our lockers, which, again, you know, the whole idea of doing that is I, how you can take it out without somehow contaminating yourself or anyone else or another yeah, patient yeah. is really um, a kind of a mystery, to be honest with you, because it would take some pretty nimble finger work to get that to happen. So Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh, and goodness. there was also a lot of discussion about the increase in price of PPE, in particular the N95s. Um mm-hmm. You know, the yeah. price has gone that it was maybe about under a dollar <laughs> prior to this. And now we're talking about six and seven and eight dollars a piece. So it becomes really difficult uh, to obtain it because there's so much competition across states. Yeah. Because of the federal yeah. government um, telling the yeah. states to act on their own. And mm-hmm. then my chief steward was talking about how the federal government has really failed us. Right. That the system yeah. is broken, which is obviously the. Um, one of the hashtags for today's National Day of Action and feeling as if there's a great inequality that exists across this country from those who are in power and then the rest of us who clearly are on the front lines and experiencing some really frightening situations where we feel very uncertain going into work every day. Um, Of course, yeah. So... So that was some of the things that were brought up, plus there's some additional actions that we're doing um, on Friday. There's a, a hospital. It's actually the first uh, African-American hospital in the United States. The mm-hmm. ER uh, was shut down about yeah. a week ago. Maybe you heard about that. Um, no, and there I wasn't much, Yeah, there wasn't much explanation, except that there was one worker in the ER who was COVID positive, so they shut it down. And they gave us about three hours notice on that, gave my union on a Friday afternoon. So that was raised as well because there are a lot of African-Americans dying from COVID in the city Mm -hmm. of Chicago. It's about 70%. And this is uh, an ER that's not as busy as the one at my hospital, but clearly serves a um, African American population that is uh, working class and poor, and right. so not having access to that ER means they have to go potentially to my hospital, which is you know about mm-hmm. a twenty minute drive away, which is yeah. could be the difference between life and death, especially yeah, with COVID mm-hmm. and issues around breathing or anything else that's going on because it's very, obviously, uh, it comes on suddenly and it's very deadly. 
That was Elizabeth Lalas, and before her, Julie Keefe. And you can read more of each of those interviews at the Descent website, where you can find, of course, our new series of belabored stories from workers on the front lines of the coronavirus crisis. If you are a nurse, healthcare worker, or just someone who's working in this moment and want to talk to us, you can always email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. President Trump caused another panic recently by proclaiming on Twitter that he would suspend immigration. In reality, the move appears more limited in scope than originally feared. It's focused on green cards only, and it would restrict new green cards for 90 days. This is all being done under the erroneous guise of protecting jobs and public health, when in reality, empirical studies have shown that restricting immigration will do neither of those things. Anyway, Trump's plan exempts one class of workers that the U.S. economy simply cannot function without. Agricultural workers, who arrive on temporary visas for seasonal harvesting work under the so-called H-2A program, are very in demand right now. There's heightened concern about keeping the country's food supply chain running amid the economic downturn, and the country's farm sector has already suffered from Trump's trade war with China. At the same time, Trump is weighing a proposal to lower wages for H-2A workers, purportedly to help the agricultural sector by reducing its labor costs. Currently, farm worker wages are set according to prevailing wage rates, which vary by region from less than $12 an hour in Florida to nearly $15 an hour in California. It's unclear how much Republicans want to reduce agricultural wages, but advocates for migrant laborers say that the move is just another attempt to push an anti-immigrant agenda by lashing it to a supposed economic concern. I spoke with Evie Peña, of Centro de los Derechos del Migrante, which advocates for migrant workers on both sides of the border, about this proposal and how the farm worker labor force might be affected. Based on on the NPR report, which I'm sure you saw, um, the White House is planning on undercutting wages for H-2A workers specifically, so workers who come to the U.S. on a seasonal basis to work in the field, so picking fruit in um, California, apples in Washington, etc., And so while we don't know the full details about this proposal, we know that it's in line with other efforts um, from this administration to undermine workers' rights. And among many parts that would undermine workers' rights, there was one proposal um, that would basically change the way that the prevailing wage is calculated in a way that it would undercut workers' wages. So what we believe is just knowing that the new rules are supposed to come out any day now. Um, we believe that this um, this report is really in line with the rules that were published last summer. Um, and what's really concerning right now is that you know migrant workers are already facing abuse from the moment that they're recruited in their communities. They're paying illegal fees, arriving at their job indebted. They're not getting adequate reimbursements from their employers, um, and they're really in situations of trafficking and exploitation. So by undercutting workers' salaries in, in a more systematic way, then uh, this financial burden would grow even more and it would facilitate even more abuse for workers. In our opinion, this administration and employers are not doing enough to protect workers. Frankly, with or without um, the public health crisis, workers' rights are not being protected under this system. Um, But we don't think that this is a one-off, but more so part of a a bigger plan that unfortunately would undermine workers' rights. And and that proposal, the proposed rules that came out last year, didn't only include undercutting workers' wages, they also included reducing the amount of inspections that the Department of Labor um, did at... um, 
workers employer provided housing um, and it would reduce the inspections from once a year and to um, once every two years. Now this would mean that um, the proposed rules as they were published last year would remove a layer of oversight for workers in their employer provided housing and, and to this day, one of the things, um, one of the most common complaints that we hear from workers is deplorable housing. Uh, we're talking about rats, um, in infestations of, of insects, um, with no not having access to basic services like electricity, water, heat. And we're talking about um, federal standards that employers are not complying with, even if there's no pandemic. So it's very concerning right now that this administration isn't doing anything to protect workers' rights. Um, I wouldn't say that it's not that it's not going far enough, but that it's not doing anything at all. And in the in you know, in contrary, we're, we're seeing how there are some employers that are putting measures in place. My response to that would be. This should not be up to employers. It should not be up to employers' goodwill to protect workers' safety. Every worker should be um, working in safe conditions and, and their rights should be respected. And instead of, of doing that, instead of having adequate oversight to protect workers' rights, this administration is planning on undercutting workers' wages and protection. So it's very concerning. Last year, over a quarter of a million H-2A workers arrived in the U.S., to work in, in different harvests and crops and across the U.S. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of people. Also, the fact that this program has tripled in the last 10 years. So we're seeing an increased reliance of employers on, on this program. Um, and really, what we're noticing is that you know there are a lot of employers who say that this program is so heavily regulated and creates a financial burden on them. Um, what we're saying as advocates is that this program actually imposes a huge burden on workers who are taking on debt when they're paying illegal fees, um, when they're recruited in their home communities, they're systemically discriminated. Um, you know, less than 10% of the H-2A workforce is made of women. So there's systemic discrimination also against older workers. And, and it just, it comes down to a pro problem of overall oversight from the Department of Labor. And that's, you know, there in the end, if there's no proper oversight, there's no incentive for employers to comply with labor standards. That was Evie Pena of Centro de los Derechos del Migrante. One of the worst outbreaks of the coronavirus in the United States is in South Dakota, not exactly a densely populated state. So what happened there? The Smithfield Foods pork plant happened. More than 700 workers from the plant have been infected with the virus, and now it turns out that the company is trying to blame the workers for their own illness. But a report at BuzzFeed by friend of the show Katie Baker and Albert Samaha has found that safety precautions were lax at the plant, and while the company wanted to blame the immigrant workers' culture for their infection, safety warnings at the plant were mostly posted only in English, as if the plant managers wanted to be able to blame the non-English-speaking workers for not having the information or something. Many of the 3,700 workers at the plant speak limited English, and safety notices at the plant, according to BuzzFeed, are usually translated into up to five languages. Those notices went up in late March, after the first confirmed case at the plant, mostly in English. 
By April 6th, two weeks after the first confirmed case, the company shuttered one floor for cleaning and instituted temperature checks, but the plant stayed open. Employees were informed of the case only if management knew they'd been in contact with the sick workers, and others were encouraged by text message, among other things, to keep coming to work. Only after 238 workers had tested positive did the plant close down for 48 hours, and even then, after it announced the plants to close, it took another few days to allow for, quote, an orderly reduction in supply. And the company was offering a $500 bonus for anyone who didn't miss a day in April, incentivizing, of course, the exact opposite behavior from that which would promote their health. The Smithfield plant story is a reminder that the choice, despite what Trump, some other politicians, and those goofball protesters think, is not between continuing the lockdown, closing businesses, and slowing the economy, or reopening for business as usual. Business as usual will result in massive clusters of the virus, workers sick, and plants having to shut down anyway. There is no back to normal to return to, because normal will result in catastrophe for the economy as well. Instead, we need to think long and hard about what it means to have our food and other necessary life-sustaining goods produced in conditions like these, where super-exploited workers are ground down to nothing, then tossed aside for a new batch. And that was before the pandemic. There have been lots of articles and arguments in the last few weeks about the labor movement, its possibilities for revival, the excitement of strikes and walkouts by non-union workers blending into sometimes maybe a little more hype than is realistic. We wanted to ask some big questions about where unions are doing well, where they're struggling, what labor history can teach us about this moment, and where we should go next. And for that, we called up Bill Fletcher Jr., one of our favorite labor thinkers and commentators. Bill is the executive editor of GlobalAfricanWorker.com, a former president of TransAfrica Forum and a longtime trade unionist and writer. He is the author of several books, including Solidarity Divided, The Crisis in Organized Labor and a New Path Toward Social Justice, and They're Bankrupting Us and 20 Other Myths About Unions. And Bill and I both have chapters in a new collection called Labor in the Time of Trump. So the pandemic and the resulting economic crisis, um, obviously, they're laying bare some of the underlying inequalities in the economy that existed before. Um, so now we're looking at this unprecedented rise in unemployment. What do you think about what this reveals about um, the vulnerabilities of the workers who have been most affected by this? Oh, it reveals everything. Um, so it reveals that we have at present, the illusion of a social safety net. You know, it's sort of like if you think about those war movies where a paratrooper is uh, jumped out of a plane and then there's holes being shot in the parachute and increasingly they speed up as more holes go into the parachute. And that's what's happened to the working class. You know, we had, we had a parachute of sorts and uh, for 40 years, we've been having holes shot in it. Um, and unfortunately, we've had too many leaders who have responded each time a hole has appeared by saying it's not that bad. It could be worse. Mm-hmm. And now we see what happens. So we have particularly low-income service workers who have absolutely nothing. 
nothing to fall back on, uh, in many cases, no health insurance, and uh, are uh, not very far away from homelessness. And this is one of the reasons that uh, I and many other people have been very frustrated with organized labor, the trade union movement, Mm -hmm. that has talked so much about the middle class. The working class is a component of society that has people at different income levels, and a whole lot of them are poor and desperately need organization. And they're the ones that are really suffering right now. I'm not talking about these right-wing idiots that are marching in the street calling for the opening of the economy. I'm talking about regular people who are absolutely suffering. Uh, So I think all of the warts have come out. I think that the lunacy of Trump's uh, 2017 tax giveaway has become very apparent because on the one hand, government is able to come forward with money when it's needed, thus proving that in the future, they'll never be able to say there's no money. But the other thing is that at some point, the loans that are taken will have to be paid. And when you have a situation where uh, Trump and his congressional minions have given so much away, the only way that that can be addressed is by reversing that tax giveaway. And we're going to have to seize the wealth. I mean, there's just no way around it. I'm not going to pull punches. It ain't going to be fun. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be absolutely essential. Going back to just how workers are being hit by this, the, I mean, we're seeing unprecedented levels of joblessness um, and, you know, that will last for at least the foreseeable future. And yet in other countries, there has not been uh, such a dramatic rise in unemployment because governments have taken measures to actually, um, you know, support keeping workers on the payroll. Can you maybe talk about why mass unemployment seems to be this uniquely American phenomenon and, you know, just mass mass layoffs of workers seems to just be sort of the uh, a normal part of business as usual? It's not unique to the United States, but it is characteristic of highly developed neoliberal economies. And so what we have seen with the destruction of the public sector, the uh, articulation of and economics and politics of austerity, this contributes to the holes in the safety net, you know, in the, in the parachute. And so in other countries that have had stronger labor movements, stronger left wings, they, uh, they have been able to resist a lot of this. But then on top of that, you have to link this with the response to COVID-19 so that uh, many other countries in in identifying the problem and believing the warnings that the World Health Organization and others were giving, started to take steps sooner than the United States to prepare to address the crisis. So I think it's a combination of the way that the United States responded to the COVID-19 crisis, as well as the deep nature of neoliberalism in the United States that have resulted in this. There's another piece to this, 
which I think is important to raise. And mm -hmm. that's about the reemergence of social Darwinism. For your listeners who are not familiar with the term, in a 19th century, uh, contemporaneously with the rise of something uh, which was called scientific racism, which is an oxymoron, <laughs> um, there was this notion taking from Charles Darwin and his scientific studies. They adopted this idea of social Darwinism to describe the survival of the fittest in a capitalist economy with the suggestion that, that, that those who were fit would survive and that surviving in a capitalist economy was not about class struggle. It was, not, it, was, it was about the ability of individuals to persevere and rise to the top. And those that didn't, tough luck. And sometime in March, you started to hear in Republican circles um, a line. And, uh, and, and the line was, the cure cannot be worse than the disease. Mm -hmm. and, this, and, and this line started to spread. Trump was articulating it, but he wasn't the only one. Various Republicans were articulating it, and they always acted as if they came up with the idea themselves. And it, it took one of its worst forms when the lieutenant governor of Texas suggested that older people and the infirm should be willing to sacrifice themselves, meaning sacrifice their lives mm -hmm. in the interest of the capitalist economy. Now, many of us said that we would follow the lead of the lieutenant governor, that he right. would need to take the first step, which he never did. But the notion there is social Darwinist. It's basically that, that it's okay to sacrifice those who are non-essential, those who are weak, those who are old, um, it's almost like eugenics. Yeah. And so you see this. I mean, I've, I've argued, I'm, in fact, I'm writing something right now. I've argued for a long time that there's a genocidal gene in capitalism that periodically emerges. And I think that we're seeing just that. Um, it doesn't have to be about concentration camps. It doesn't have to be about mass executions. The genocidal gene is really one that says that it is okay for millions of people to die in the interest of the preservation of the economy, of the capitalist economy. That's what we're seeing. Yeah, the one today that I saw was the, uh, some things are more important than living. One wow, of, yeah. I am with you on the, like, you first, buddy, but, you know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, these right-wing demonstrators claim the flag of libertarianism. Now, they, they're not so much arguing a direct social Darwinist line. They're arguing um, a more irrationalist line of, of let, you know, let's open up the economy and the chips will fall where they do because this COVID-19 is really not that bad. Um, and we'll we'll get by get through it, and yeah. while humanity will get through this, a lot of people are going to suffer and die, and the um, and the irony and hypocrisy of what these demonstrators are saying is that they are prepared 
to denounce social distancing, to denounce the other steps that the more enlightened governors have implemented, as long as they're healthy. I, I wrote this piece I'm trying to get published um, that basically argues that every layer of government and every medical institution should prepare an affidavit that says to those who are demonstrating and others that believe in it, that they, and they should sign their name, uh, acknowledge the governmental rec uh, recommendations about social distancing and other steps, and that they are going to ignore it. And in ignoring it, they're prepared to waive their rights to medical assistance for themselves and for anyone in their household over the age of 18. And that uh, should they become sick, that they will agree to self-medicate and not infect anybody under the age of 18 or anyone else. That's really what's at stake. I mean, that's the narrative that progressives need to be throwing back at these lunatics. That they are, they are saying that they want to be libertarian, and we should say, that's fine. We will release you to your liberties, and you will release us from the burden of protecting you because we have healthcare workers and first responders who are putting their lives on the line and will be putting their lives on the line again uh, as more of these idiots become ill. It's also interesting because there is one sign that um, the woman's holding the sign that just says, I want a haircut. Mm -hmm. And a few people sort of commented on that in this way that I thought was really actually insightful. It's like, it's not just that they want their liberty. They want people to go to work to have to wait on them, right? She's That's not right. just saying like she wants to be able to go outside. She can go outside. She wants her hairdresser to have to go to work. Very good point. Very, very important point. But of course, yeah, that's couched in the language of individual freedom as opposed to the worker that is being oppressed in order to deliver the services that one associates with that freedom. So, um, But yeah, it's, it's weird. Rugged individualism doesn't work so well when there's a pandemic and you have people who have taken a Hippocratic oath to like, you know, treat yeah, you when you're sick. Exactly. <laughs> but um, going back to this distinction between a uh, you know, essential versus non-essential and, you know, how those categories are defined. I mean, we have people working in frontline jobs, um, often low-wage jobs, who are facing extraordinary health and safety risks. They seem to have very little recourse in terms of what they can do to protect themselves. But um, how do you see this playing out in terms of what workers can do uh, within their workplaces when they're being put at such risks and they're being asked to basically uh, sacrifice their health potentially for a paycheck? Well, it depends. Uh, it's a very good question. And it depends, uh, first of all, whether there's a union or not. Um, yeah. So unionized workers, for example, United Food and Commercial Workers Local 21 up in Seattle, Washington State, has been doing some really remarkable work and activating their members um, and pushing real demands around um, uh, personal protective equipment, et cetera. There are, there's the National Nurses United, New York State Nurses Association, both of which are engaged in those kinds of struggles. So where you have an organization 
the worker is obviously in a much better position to push this. The problem is only 10% of the workers in this country are unionized. So we're talking about the 90% that are non-union that have no recourse to organization or recognized organization. They can take certain steps, but most of them live in fear that if they take those steps that they will get fired, that if they basically make the demand um, as uh, has happened in, in, uh, you know, uh, in Amazon and a number of other places where workers have been fired uh, when they've been raising these various demands, people get really uneasy. Now, this is one of the reasons that uh, it was, it's interesting in, in Washington state, what I was told by my friends in UCW is that in part because of the good bargaining that local has done, there's workers in a lot of different sectors that want to join them. And, and I, I think that this is really a moment, ironically, for unionization on a massive scale. And, and that this is not a time for passivity. Workers are saying in so many ways that they want organization, they want protection on the job. They know increasingly that they're not going to get it unless there is some level of organization and legal protection. And so now's the time for the unions to really be there in great guns. Um, it, it will mean a different kind of unionization uh, efforts. And, um, and, and I think that's, if I were to say, if I was, if I was at the AFL-CIO or if I was in some of these independent unions, SEIU and others, I'd say this is what needs to be done right now. You named a few unions that are doing a good job right now, but I wonder um, if you want to talk a little bit more about what they're doing that's going well and also some other places where you see um, good work being done. Well, I, I think I'm going to f- reframe that because the issue is more, I think, if there are positive examples of good work, and I mentioned three, why aren't there more? <laughs> that was going to be the next question, Bill. Yeah. And, and that's actually what I'd like to focus more on. Yeah. Uh, because, because I think that you don't have to be a genius to appreciate the significance of this moment. My assessment is that we have a trade union movement that has over the years become increasingly fragmented, finding it more and more difficult to think and act collectively, developing an attitude of self-preservation for each of the different organizations and is not prepared to collectively respond when needed. So right now at this moment, in, in various states, including New York State, budget issues that are emerging. This is a time when particularly the public sector unions need to be coming together and coordinating their work. Now, I'm not a genius. Other people, I'm sure, have thought about the same thing. Why aren't they doing it? Why is that not happening? 
And, and I think that this sort of individual self-preservation mode is very dominant right now. Um, that that uh, what you don't have in the movement is a real fight for a strong federation. The unions, speaking bluntly, tolerate the AFL-CIO, but they don't look to the AFL-CIO, except at election time, they don't look to the AFL-CIO to really be, in effect, the voice for workers, the voice for organized labor, the, the center for organizing collective um, work and projects. And, and so you have this sort of centrifugal force that's pulling the different unions away from one another, leading in some cases to people bolting completely, the carpenters, uh, SEIU, and others to participate, but not really pay much attention to what the national AFL-CIO claims to be attempting to move. So that situation means that when there is this kind of catastrophe that we're facing, the movement is, is overall unprepared to respond. At best, it comes up with the rhetoric of collective activity, but the competing interests really tear at this. And until we have either a movement within labor or several key leaders that say, basta, enough, that we've got to link arms and try something different, I think the situation is going to get worse. The other factor is that um, even some of the better work is not linked to, how can I put it, a broader conception of trade unionism and particularly the, the necessity for expansive alliances. So you have a situation where, let's just, say, let's just talk about nurses for a second. The nurses are in many ways at the vanguard of today's labor movement. They are doing amazing work. And the courage is, is this outstanding. I, and I don't want to take anything away from what they're doing. What I would say is that it's not just that people need to support the nurses. It's that they have to see in the fight that the nurses are leading their own fight, whether they are other unions or whether they are community-based organizations. So, th so that when we're looking at this fight, unions need to be thinking about how do we build a really broad front? Now, particularly with the um, reemergence of these right-wing lunatics, one of the dangers is what we saw in 2009 and 2010 with the uh, rise of the Tea Party, that the, the prominence that the media gave to the Tea Party led to this sense that by many people that they represented a majority opinion. 
Now, fortunately, right now, we recognize that these right-wing lunatics don't. But we progressives need to mount a counterattack. And part of that counterattack has to be a narrative. And that's why I said the thing before about, a, about an affidavit. But part of it has to be visibility. So I'll give you an example. Uh, May Day is fast approaching. This would be a wonderful time for a public display of labor insurgency in response to COVID-19 and the economic uh, crisis, where we are putting before the people of the United States the demand, basic demands. I'm not talking about revolution. I'm talking about basic demands of, around uh, personal protective equipment, uh, around guaranteed income through this crisis, about guaranteed health care in the context of this crisis, um, about the protection of small business, uh, about, um, about the, the racial disparities that have emerged in the, in the context of this crisis that many people were denying, others of us have recognized. This would be a time for a massive display of worker insurgency around this country. Now, there's a couple of different ways we can do this. And one way would be for us to have massive car caravans in every major city of this country that goes throughout at the speed limit, as posted, that goes through these cities broadcasting the demands of working people and making it clear that this is not just the unions operating by themselves, but it's the unions in conjunction with these other forces. We've got to get our voice out there. We've got to make sure that people understand that our voice is their voice. We're, we're speaking the voice of the majority and not the voice of these lunatics um, or some, you know, the, the so-called wingnuts. Um, so we've got to be thinking very differently about how to position ourselves and how to position our demands. We're not just trying to protect doctors and nurses. We're not just trying to protect doctors, nurses, and other medical personnel. We're not just trying to protect doctors, nurses, other medical personnel, and first responders. We're really trying to address the protection of the society. And that's what labor needs to be standing for. You talked about, you know, which workers, you know, we might elevate above others or might try to seek to protect um, while others are left behind. I was, just wanted to ask, you know, we, we've seen how a lot of these workers who have been hardest hit by layoffs, as well as um, the workers who are being asked to um, sacrifice an extraordinary amount on the front line who are still going to work, a lot of them are disproportionately people of color, um, immigrants, women. Seems like this would be an opportunity for some kind of, uh, I don't know, state intervention to address some of these underlying inequities in the workforce. Um, yes. What do you What do you think would be the appropriate response to these glaring inequalities that are really being exposed right now? Well, this is a great question because it, it actually raises why the notion of something like Black Lives Matter Latino lives matter, right? Asian lives matter, right? Why 
the response, the reactionary response when people say, well, all lives matter. Well, they should. But what we're seeing in the society is that some lives matter more than others as far as society is concerned. It goes back to the example you gave about someone protesting and saying that they wanted a haircut. They wanted a haircut. They don't give a damn whether the person that comes in who may be black or brown or they just may be a poor white person uh, comes in. They don't really care whether they die. They want their haircut. And, and so one of the things that we have to say is that the lives of people that are traditionally marginalized matter. And we're putting it right on the table. And that they matter more than you getting your damn haircut. So, again, there's a narrative issue here that I think is really important. Unite Here, the union Unite Here, has lost most of its membership. One of the most powerful unions in the country lost most of their membership. Why? Not because the members have quit, but because of layoffs. And so that goes to what you were just saying. The role of government. I had this argument with uh, a very reactionary relative of mine. I love him, but he's he's really reactionary. And, um, And, you know, he's always telling me that the private sector can do it better. And I'm always pointing out to him that any time the private sector gets into trouble, they come to the public sector. So what does that tell us? And and he, you know, usually changes the subject at that point. So in this context, I said, listen, Hayek and Friedman have no answer to the crisis that we're in. I'm talking about the the chief architects of neoliberalism. They have no answer that you need government intervention. Government needs to intervene. It needs to go into the hole if it needs to, uh, if it must, in order to get the resources to rebuild the economy and to sustain people. And and in a situation of a catastrophe, uh, a health catastrophe as we're facing, as as the public health people are pointing out, a premature reopening of the economy uh, could be potentially disastrous, and particularly if in the fall and winter we get hit with this again on top of uh, flu season. So we need desperately the role of government to sustain people uh, during this period because it may mean that people are out of work for a very long time. Uh, and, And this goes completely against the ethos of the Margaret Thatchers, the Ronald Reagans, and the Donald Trumps that would like us to believe that uh, you can keep the Mitch McConnells, that you can keep whittling away at government and that somehow people will survive. And again, this goes back to the lunacy of social Darwinism. So it seems like the labor movement in some respects is going to be pretty devastated by this, but... In recent weeks, we've also seen workers at huge companies like Amazon and Walmart uh, organizing to uh, demand safer workplaces, um, you know, hazard pay, um, personal protective equipment, um, and basic, you know, fair treatment on the job. Um, do you think that 
there are some green shoots here in the sense that this crisis might lead to a surge in workplace organizing in some contexts? Oh, absolutely. It will. And the question of whether it, it transforms into permanent organization is the big question. Workers will resist. That I have no doubt. And they are already. But the question of building permanent organization is the tricky one uh, because people can revolt. I, I, um, I remember years ago when I was in Boston, there was a non-union hospital and there was a caucus of a committee of African-American and Puerto Rican workers who came together to protest discrimination in the hospital. This is a non-union hospital. And one summer, they carried out a picket line of 150 people in front of this hospital. Now, it's like, wow, 150 people in a non-union hospital picketing. And they had these demands and the um, management freaked out and told the committee that they would agree to the demands. And um, at that point, the committee dissolved. And before they dissolved, because I was I was sort of doing some work with them, and they told me they were going to dissolve. I said, please do not dissolve. You can't dissolve. And they said, Bill, you worry too much. If, if, if management doesn't follow through, we'll reform. I said, it ain't that easy. They said, you just worry too much. So they dissolved the committee. And within a matter of months, all of the leaders were fired. And the demands weren't implemented. And that's the issue, building permanent organization, not whether people will rise up. They will rise up. But if we don't build permanent organization through unions, there will be a counterattack when the employer is feeling less vulnerable. So that's part one of my answer to you. But part two is a different sort of answer, not about the non-union, but it's about unions. We're at a moment, there's, there's a scene in the beginning of George C. Scott's film, Patton. And it's right after the Battle of Kasserine Pass in Tunisia in 1943. U.S. troops were badly defeated by the Germans. And the U.S. military is not sure what to do. But they ultimately decide that they have to get rid of the commander of those forces. And they bring in Patton. And when they bring in Patton, he introduces a different approach to military organization, to strategy and tactics, and goes on to kick the ass of the Germans. There are times when you have to say to the leaders of a movement, we appreciate what you've done. We appreciate and recognize your dedication. And now it's time for you to leave because we're in a different war. Uh, we're fighting a different set of battles. We're fighting something that you're clearly unprepared to lead in. You may think you are, but the facts are pure evidence that, that you're not. We don't want to humiliate you. We just think you should retire and that this is an appropriate moment to retire. And I think that in 
Every union today in the national AFL-CIO, in state federation, central labor councils, the leaders need to ask themselves those questions and the members or the representatives need to ask that as well. Do we have the leaders for the war in which we are in? We may be going into a depression. We're certainly going into a lengthy period of uh, a medical crisis. Do we have the leaders that we need? Or do we need to bring in general patents? I, I mean, it's, it's a very obvious question. And, and again, it's not about humiliating. It's, it's about recognizing that sometimes the best recourse is for someone to say, you know what, I don't have the answers anymore. And I'm willing to step aside. Because the other alternative is that they get pushed aside. And that can be very ugly. So related to all of that, and I'm not going to ask you who General Patton is, because that's a difficult question. But historically, the U.S. labor movement has seen a lot of its biggest periods of growth in really big crises, notably the Great Depression. Um, and I kind of keep thinking, like, what's our equivalent of the CIO for this moment? What's the new organizing structure and strategy that we need for this moment? Well, let's sort of reconfigure that question a bit. Um, <laughs> Bill, that- you should run for office. if nominated i will accept Um, (laughs) all right so i think oh no absolutely (laughs) let's let we'll we'll chat um i i think we have to say that in certain periods of economic crisis labor has emerged but not across the board i mean let me just give a couple of examples In the 1893 depression, which was the most significant depression before the Great Depression, labor largely collapsed. And there there was the rise of the populist movement, but labor as a movement wasn't doing very well. Um, In the 1970s, beginning with the 1970s and the 73, 74 recession or the Volcker recession that began in 80, went to 82, labor didn't do so well. Now, what happens, what happened in the Great Depression? Well, there were a few things. And one of the things is something that a lot of people in organized labor don't want to talk about, which is the left. That in the 1920s and 30s, you had a growing communist party you had a socialist party, you had Trotskyists, and you had the Mustites, all of which contributed significantly to laying the foundation for the reemergence of organized labor. It wasn't just a matter of the brilliance of John L. Lewis. In fact, there's a new book out by Mike Goldfield, a former professor at Wayne State, about 
organizing in the South um, and the South uh, South in the 1930s and 1940s, which really taught it's really important and talks about how a lot of the organizing that we think of in terms of transformation in the 30s began before the National Labor Relations Act. And it was driven by the United Mine Workers, but it was also driven by other forces. And it was also driven by an unemployed movement, which the Communist Party led. So I would say in terms of your question, as I tried to raise, uh, as, as Gapacin and I tried to raise in our book, Solidarity Divided, that organized labor needs the left as much as the left needs organized labor. Uh, that the efforts that have been undertaken, and this is where I disagree with some of my friends who are on the left, but tend to downplay the specific need for an organized left and more emphasize uh, labor strategies or tactical approaches. I saw a lot of that up, uh, firsthand in SEIU in the 1990s, some really fine work, but in the absence of a left, that work goes but so far, both because the reformers within organized labor are only going to go but so far unless you are standing behind them, making sure they can't turn around and retreat. Unless you're standing there pressuring them, many of even the best reformers will get wobbly legs at a certain moment. And one of the things that we saw in the 1930s were various forces on the left playing a critical role in pushing these reformers. People like John L. Lewis, when he and others uh, in what was initially the Committee on Industrial Organization and then becomes the Congress of Industrial Organizations, when they were getting started, what do they do in terms of organizers? Well, they went to the Communist Party. They went to the socialists. They went to the Mustites, right? There were Trotskyists involved. I mean, it's like, it wasn't like they just said, oh, listen, we got all this money, right? We're going to hire people and you work nine to five. You don't work on weekends. And at five o'clock, no matter what you're doing, you just punch out, right? They didn't do anything like that. They hired people who were in their souls, in their heart, in their blood, committed to organizing the working class, when they attempted to organize without the left, like Operation Dixie in 1946, they failed miserably. So I would say that the critical thing right now really is, is the we on the left need to understand it's not an academic thing. It's not just about articulating views. It's not practicing something at home in privacy. It's about a social practice that necessitates organization, and that the kind of organizations we need to build are organizations that integrate themselves within the working class and within these various battles and help to build unemployed councils, unions, worker centers, etc. cetera. Um, and that that's not gonna be done by the best, most progressive nonprofit. It's not gonna be done by the most creative leader in organized labor comes up with wonderful tactics, it's going to necessitate much more. 
a real sense of movement building. So that's where I would start. Now, that's not to say that there aren't strategies that need to be followed. I would argue that um, in terms of strategies, the issue of organizing industries, but also, also organizing geographically is something that has to be reconsidered. Um, <clears throat> like when I'm talking about organizing geographically, I mean uh, things like what uh, Jane McAlevey did in Stanford, Connecticut in the 1999 and 2000 of pulling unions together, local unions together, and through the Central Labor Council, basically embarking on significant organizing in a geographic area of eastern, of western Connecticut and of uniting with community-based organizations. That, to me, has always been a model that could be replicated at a metropolitan level or, in some cases, maybe even a state level. Um, the organizing on of industries, and organizing of the unemployed. I remember during the 2008 crisis, um, I was working with some people to explore the issue of unemployment organizing. And I had two experiences with funders that were just absolutely remarkable. And, and one with the AFL-CIO. There was a funder that actually approached me. And uh, they said, you know, we know you're interested in organizing employees. So I got really excited. And I thought, wow, we could get significant resources and get this thing off the ground. And all of a sudden, they pulled back. And I remember getting this email from them saying, well, we're not really sure this is the best time to organize the unemployed. Um, maybe at a later point. And I, I read this email about two or three times and I said, we're in the worst recession since the depression. Workers are out of work. And you say, this is not the time to organize the unemployed. Hmm. The second, uh, the second thing that happened was I, t I went to another funder and this other funder ridiculed the idea of organizing the unemployed, ridiculed, and said it was a wrong-headed view and that um, we shouldn't be organizing sectors. We should be organizing the people, whatever that meant. And, and, I, and I just, I was trying to figure this out. I mean, it's like, You've got people that are out of work. What are you talking about? Well, then, then the AFL-CIO started talking about it, and they expressed the initial interest, and then they gave it up. And part of the reason they gave it up was that, as far as I can tell, is that there was no constituency within the AFL-CIO, you know, none of the affiliated unions that really felt like it was essential to organize the unemployed. Because it wasn't like the unemployed were paying dues. It wasn't like the unemployed were a voting block within their unions. And so they gave up. And I think what the CP did beginning in 1929, 1930, that was followed by other groups, was correct, that you need to have an unemployed movement, ideally, organized labor would be supporting it and funding it, 
but they might not. And you might have to find other resources, but you're going to need to develop a leadership cadre. They're going to pursue it. And I think over the next couple of years, we're going to need an unemployed movement. Hmm. You noted earlier that, uh, you know, Unite Here has taken a huge blow to its membership uh, just through layoffs, right? And we're looking at, um, you know, massive unemployment figures that are going to hit workforces with relatively strong union density. So um, what do you think will be the long-term consequences of this for organized labor? Um, I mean, will I mean, unions will lose members. Um, will they be weakened in the long term? Or do you feel like this is like the perfect moment to pivot into organizing, you know, a mass unemployed movement? I think a number of things are possible. Um, as I like to say, I only bet on sure things. So um, so I think this there's a number of possible scenarios. So one thing that we've talked about is that This is a moment, without question, where organized labor could pivot and could, in fact, move significant organizing efforts of the former workforce. No question. This is also a moment, I'd say, well, within a month or so, will be a moment when um, reorganizing the unemployed could really jumpstart. But whether organized labor will strengthen or disappear is a question that doesn't just relate to what you were raising, but also the political context. We're in a situation with a right-wing authoritarian president. I think the term proto-fascist is probably correct. Uh, Leading a right-wing populist movement that is fusing with some elements of neoliberal capital and wants to crush various forms of dissent, including but not limited to labor. It wants to crush the environmental movement. It wants to to crush the women's movement. It wants to crush, um, just across the board, it wants to crush dissent. And so another four years of Trump, and they may succeed. So that's another scenario. Now, I think that the wise course of action for the leaders of organized labor would be to situate themselves and with the leaders of some of the other major social movements as the equivalent of the Joint Chiefs of Staff in December 1941. Pearl Harbor had been attacked. Most of the fleet was destroyed. The Japanese were taking island after island. They invaded the Philippines. It looked like it looked like it was all over. And in that moment, 
you needed leadership that didn't freak, uh, that didn't throw its hands in the air talking about the apocalypse, uh, but basically said, how do we mount a counteroffensive? That's what is needed right now from leadership. And the counteroffensive is not just about organizing more workers. It's about building the unemployed movement. It's about defending uh, tenants and homeowners that are threatened with evictions. Um, it's about developing a working people's agenda that we force politicians to run on and we tackle them when they stray from that. It's about fighting for power. See, so I think that there really are these, these different roads, these different scenarios that could unfold. And which one unfolds depends to a great extent on what we on the left do or don't do. Uh, because what I see a lot, and I see a lot of it on Facebook, which is why I've really been giving serious thought to um, eliminating my Facebook account. Uh, yeah. Is, you know, I mean, really, because I see all of this um, apocalyptic thinking, catastrophism, uh, the world is ending. You know, I, I said to um, a friend of mine posted, reposted something by someone who was talking about how everything is going to hell. Mm -hmm. And I read it and, I, and I, I wrote in response to my friend. I said, I don't know why you're posting this. If you, if you really believe this, then we should pass out the Kool-Aid and call it a day. Or we should all go out and get the best herb we can and stay high. Because <laughs> if you believe this, then the situation is hopeless. I don't happen to believe it's hopeless. But if you believe it, right? And, and I decided at that point I was going to stop reading this apocalyptic stuff, including yeah. by some people I'm not going to mention because yeah. I like them uh, very much. But all they do is write about how bad the situation is, as if the fear of death and the fear of collapse is enough to inspire people to go forward, as opposed to recognizing that when you scare people enough, they're going to turn in on themselves. Yeah. You know, and, and so I actually think we can turn the situation around. I'm looking for that new Joint Chiefs of Staff. I'm looking because I know we can build a counteroffensive, and it's going to be very hard. Um, but I think that this is one of those critical moments. I mean, you know, look, all kinds of things are up in the air. It's like, you know, government will never be able to say that there's no money again. They, they in a matter of days, all of the austerity arguments went, went like right out the window. Mm -hmm. Um. You know, people all of a sudden, you know, people that were skeptical of so-called Medicare for all are saying, no, 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 like, actually, we need it. You know, the issue of pensions, I mean, all of these things, the, the ground is ready. 
question is whether we're ready and whether we're going to do something. So let me give you one example, one final example of, of what just drives me crazy. So it looks like Biden will be the Democratic nominee. And I say it looks like it because as far as I'm concerned, there is no such thing as there's nothing that's sure and certain. We do not know what's going to happen. We don't know what's going to happen when the Democratic Convention happens or what the Democratic Convention will even look like. But for the sake of the argument, he looks like he'll be the, the nominee. So what do you have on Facebook and Twitter? You have all these people saying, oh, this is terrible. Biden is not going to do this. Biden is not going to do that. Biden's done this. And very rarely do you see someone that says, okay, let us get a hundred of our organizations together and go visit Joe and say to Joe, this is the deal, man. Now, when, when Sanders suspended his campaign, a number of younger organizations or organizations for younger folks, uh, millennials and some uh, Gen Xs, uh, wrote, uh, I thought, a fine open letter to uh, to Biden and basically said, you're going to have to compete for our vote. Well, we need to push the envelope and go even further. And, and instead of waiting for these people like Biden, who I would never put in the camp of being a progressive, we basically say, no, 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 listen, Joe, this is the way it's going to be. This is what needs to happen. And if your campaign is not going to do it that way, well, we may campaign for you, but outside of your campaign. See, I think we've got to just be thinking differently because of what's at stake. That was Bill Fletcher Jr., longtime union activist and writer and executive director of GlobalAfricanWorker.com. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it's time for ARG. I wish I'd written that. My pick for ARG is What One New York Teacher is Learning in a Pandemic by Amber Joseph in the New York Review of Books. Joseph is an 8th grade teacher in District 1, which covers the Lower East Side, East Village, and Chinatown, right around the area that I grew up in, in downtown Manhattan. But these days, Joseph is a teacher in her apartment, doing her best, along with her students, to recreate some semblance of the classroom experience. It is, to say the least, a trying time. Her secondary school is actually a pretty progressive institution. It's part of an earlier education reform movement that had emphasized small, community-based schools. However, this model is now being turned on its head, since students are no longer experiencing the physical space of a school as a social anchor. Rather, they are tenuously tied to their teachers as they struggle to balance their education and family lives, floating within the digital ether within the four walls of their rooms. Joseph noted that there have actually been a number of good media reports on how educators and students across the country are struggling with distance learning, trying to get used to Zoom conferences, remote attendance taking, and video consultations over their homework. However, she writes, quote, the bulk of these personal experience pieces skew toward young people who are experiencing quarantine with the privilege of sometimes second homes in rural or suburban locations. Their parents or caretakers are overwhelmingly not classified as essential workers, and their shelter-in-place accounts come with 
more square footage, fully stocked kitchen cabinets, and outside green space than their lower class peers, many of whom remain confined in less inspiring urban spaces." Unquote. The latter describes the experience of many, many New York school children whose families often relied on public schools not only as a source of childcare during the day while they worked, but a source of hot meals and basic recreation. So it's a different kind of school experience when virtually connecting with your students isn't possible because of spotty internet access, or your students need mental health support that they cannot access now because they cannot meet in person with their guidance counselor, or they can't focus on school because they're living in a crowded homeless shelter. Joseph and other educators are well aware of the concerns constraints of their current work situation, and they have a new appreciation of the day-to-day -day hardships that their students face. In the pre-pandemic era, part of what made school so important had less to do with what went on in the classroom per se than what the physical trappings of a school could offer students, social contact, an escape from trouble at home, or maybe just breakfast. She writes, quote, teaching, I've come to find, incorporates some of the most demanding work a person can do, emotionally and intellectually. Leading up to the school closure, Mayor de Blasio insisted that they could not close. Besides providing childcare for working families, the biggest reason was that the majority of city students live below the poverty line, and their families relied on schools to provide both breakfast and lunch. And yet, amid concerns for our own and our families' possible exposure to infection, teachers wondered again how we had become the stewards of be-all and all social welfare." Unquote. She also underscores the fact that teachers were organizing to demand more resources well before the crisis hit. Referring to the recent spate of teachers' strikes across the country, she writes, quote, Teachers have shown that they are willing to strike not just for higher pay, but for resources dedicated to the full range of what schools and the people who work in them are expected to provide in the 21st century United States, unquote. She observes that even in the more restrictive online sphere, teachers continue to go beyond the call of duty, acting as de facto social workers, translators, and technicians as students and their families struggle to navigate the public benefits system or to procure the laptops they need to continue their education from home. She writes, quote, For many, the coronavirus outbreak is illuminating the fault lines of disenfranchisement, poverty, and disparity that course through our nation, unquote. And then it falls to teachers to keep putting out these fires every day in a school system that is chronically under-resourced even in the best of times, and these days engulfed in chaos with no end in sight. But the fact that everyone expects teachers to make do is a testament both to their capability as well as to the sad way that they have become shock absorbers for many social ills. It's common to refer to educators, along with healthcare workers, and even frontline retail and grocery workers, as heroes these days. Yet, while many teachers are undertaking these seemingly heroic feats, they may end up creating a kind of moral hazard for a system that constantly leaves them picking up the slack where other public institutions have failed. Teachers, and I'm speaking here as an educator myself who is teaching online for the first time too, albeit to college students, teachers will do what it takes to keep their students safe and stable. And getting them well-educated is, of course, a great bonus. But when everyone is running on empty, that means that the learning process itself might end up being subordinated to the task of tending to people's basic needs, both the students' needs as well as the needs of the educator. It might feel taboo these days to complain about these circumstances, given that everyone seems to be in desperate straits and schools are just one institution that has been damaged by the crisis. Yet maybe this is the perfect time to use this crisis to make a political point. What we're living through right now is no accident. It's the byproduct of generations of social disinvestment. And it's also an object lesson. We're learning how hard it is to stay connected to each other in our schools. But as educators, we're also learning how all of our struggles remain, for better or worse, inextricably interwoven. Friend of the show Miranda Hall, a researcher at the New Economics Foundation in London, has written for Open Democracy about the realities of domestic workers' work crisis under the coronavirus, titled appropriately, Love Doesn't Pay the Bills. 
Though she's writing about the UK, many of the things she describes are also happening to US-based domestic workers as well. She writes, quote, A few weeks ago, when Manuela's employers started showing symptoms of coronavirus, she was faced with an impossible decision. A 22-year-old live-in nanny from Brazil, she doesn't have right-to-work documentation and therefore relies on cash-in-hand income from the families she works for. If she doesn't go to work, where she's exposed to the virus, she won't get any cash. Without that cash, she can't pay for food and basic necessities. As one of the two million workers in the UK's informal economy, many of whom are migrant women, she is not able to receive any support from the government. End quote. Miranda notes that immigrant workers in informal economy work like this are falling through the cracks of the UK's support system for workers under the coronavirus, which is, of course, more generous than the one the US has set up by far. She continues, quote, Manuela decided to risk destitution over sickness and leave her job. She is now sleeping on a friend's floor, buying food with savings that will soon run out. But many nannies are unable to say no if their employers ask them to keep working, even if it breaks government guidelines. Ana, another Brazilian nanny living in London, has continued to commute to her employer's house on public transport every day, leaving her kids at home now that schools are closed. Like most care work, there is no way Anna can social distance from the children she's looking after, and she has not been provided with any protective equipment. Workers in the informal economy were already at higher risk of labor rights violations such as underpayment, excessive working hours, denial of sick pay and entitlements, but coronavirus has only exacerbated this. End quote. Those migrant workers also have no access to health care, even with the National Health Service. People who have insecure immigration status have no recourse to public funds, denying them any right to use it. And of course, here in the U.S., as articles have noted that the high death toll among migrants and people of color is connected to the fact that they are less likely to have health insurance and thus end up seeking care only in an absolute emergency because they can't afford it otherwise. In those emergencies, of course, it may already be too late. But what's even more frustrating about this situation and beyond frustrating extra exploitative, is that, as Miranda details, quote, Manuela and Anna, like increasing numbers of childcare workers in the informal economy, find work through websites like childcare.co.uk or apps like Bubble. In response to the coronavirus crisis, both childcare.co.uk and Bubble have launched the We Heart the NHS initiative, which encourages childcare workers to use these online platforms to volunteer their services to NHS workers in need of childcare. NHS workers certainly need all the help they can get, but so do the workers on these platforms facing potential homelessness and destitution. Rather than providing support for their workers, these platforms are asking them to work for free. Many have argued that coronavirus could force us to revalue the care work performed by a largely immigrant workforce. But initiatives like this suggest something more sinister, the devaluation of care work by reinforcing the idea that it is not work at all. Historically, mainstream economics has not recognized tasks such as cooking, cleaning, and childcare as productive forms of labor because they have historically been carried out for free by naturally caring, feminized family members. Manuela described how this can be weaponized by employers to exploit nannies or housekeepers. They say, oh, you need to be a part of the family because then you are expected to work all the time just for love. End quote. Long-time listeners to this show have heard me talk plenty about this, and it's bad enough in normal times. But when there's a massive health crisis and care workers are suddenly being touted as heroes, it's worth the reminder that you can't eat love and love can't cure coronavirus. 
Rather than love and kind words and 8 p.m. applause, the New Economics Foundation is proposing instead a minimum income guarantee or basic income universally available so that no one has to choose between their health and going to work. And of course, they call for lifting the no recourse to public funds rule. Here in the U.S., as Donald Trump pledges to end immigration, except for, you know, those guest workers and wealthy people and all sorts of exceptions that make it entirely clear that his immigration policy has nothing to do with coronavirus and everything to do with racist scapegoating, we should remember, too, that we are all only as healthy as the least protected among us. That's all we have time for this week. Stay tuned for much more on the coronavirus, the workplace, and how the world is changing. In between podcast episodes, you can head over to dissentmagazine.org slash belabored for the ongoing coverage that Michelle and I are doing pretty much every day, talking to working people who are holding the world together or getting laid off during this crisis. If you have a story you want to share, we want to hear from you. Email us at belabored at dissentmagazine.org. If you are trapped at home and want something fun to do come May Day, I'm hosting a special conversation between two labor leaders you've probably heard of, Sarah Nelson of the Association of Flight Attendants, CWA, and Stacey Davis-Gates of the Chicago Teachers Union. It is a fundraiser for our friends at Haymarket Books and Labor Notes, and you can register for free, but if you're still making money, donations are appreciated. We'll link to all the details at the Descent website. Thank you, as always, to Descent for hosting us, to Natasha Lewis for editing us and making us sound good every week. Thanks to you for listening, and even more thanks to you if you've rated us on iTunes, shared us with your friends, promoted us on Twitter or Facebook, or generally, you know, tried to convince people to pay attention to what working people are up to. An extra special thanks to our belabored sustaining members. Just $5 a month gets you a fabulous belabored tote bag. You can find out more about all of that at descentmagazine.org slash belabored membership. You can, as always, email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org if you are a nurse without enough PPE or a grocery store worker or warehouse worker or anyone else being affected by the spread of the pandemic. You can tweet at us, too, at hashtag belabored. We'll be back in two weeks. Solidarity. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.